Welcome to episode 30 of Mental Health by TalkLink. Here's what's coming up. The goal isn't necessarily always to stay together, especially if, as you said, the relationship's totally unhealthy, really toxic, and sometimes um, it's as simple as it just being impossible. Hi, I'm Rowan, and today we're speaking with Emma Chalakians about relationships, couples therapy, and cheating. Emma is a clinical psychologist who specializes in relationships and couples therapy. Today's podcast is brought to you by TalkLink, an online directory listing mental health practitioners like psychologists, counselors, and psychotherapists. You can search for a mental health practitioner for free by applying filters for things that are important to you like a particular focus area or experience in a specific treatment type. You can even see a short video of a therapist to decide whether this is someone that you would like to connect with. Many health practitioners are fully booked out at the moment for weeks or even months. All the clinicians on TalkLink have capacity to see clients straight away. Find your mental health practitioner today at talklink.com.au. Okay, let's dive in. So Emma, why would someone or a couple come to see you? What sorts of themes comes out in couples therapy? There's two main things I would say. Um, one main theme is infidelity. Like that's kind of a common issue that goes across the entire lifespan. Um, but then we do tend to find a lot of younger couples who are a lot more progressive in the way that they operate. They come in because they want to make sure that they set their relationship up so that they operate healthily and they operate in a way that they feel better connected and they want to learn to communicate better and resolve things a lot more effectively. Um, so essentially it's almost like they're thinking it's the interventions about let's do this so that we don't fall into, into a rut. Let's do it so that we, uh, we try and stay on top of things versus um, dealing with it in the crisis. So these are couples coming in who are not unhappy, who are happy, but who are saying we want to stay happy for the next 20, 30 years. So really? You see yeah. people like yeah. that? Yeah. <laughs> who are these people? <laughs> they do exist and it's actually quite refreshing. Yeah. Yeah. Purely because when you're, I mean, the thing with therapy and most people probably experience, like when you're going in, in the crux of like the crisis where it's something's happened and you're totally distressed, the experience of therapy is so, so much more different because what you're trying to do is actually deal with that intense pain of whatever it is that you're experiencing versus, you know, when you start something where it's like, actually, I'm not foreseeing issues, but it's more like, how do I develop myself or how do we develop as a couple together? where your brain isn't in a place of um, fight or flight. It's not overwhelmed. It's more like, hey, I'm thinking clearly, what do I need to do to make sure that I set my life up or we set our life up in a way that it's going to be so much more satisfying and fulfilling? Amazing. And you said that was for the younger clients. So what about the rest of them? From a, and again, this is only personal perspective, but patterning can be, you know, the longer people are together, and let's just say moving into their 30s or their 40s, common issues that come up again outside of infidelity is um, just disconnection. So, you know, they've grown apart or they're not necessarily communicating as well or um, they feel detached from each other. So it's almost like they're living very separate lives. And a common thing that you hear is uh, we feel like roommates. We're coexisting. We're not connected as a couple. So, you know, even levels of intimacy you know, can't, don't exist or not to the level that they would like. I guess if you take a step back and again, from your perspective, do you see more young clients or more clients in their like 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s? Like what's the balance? 
real kind of range like it's um for myself I would say that I kind of see the entire range whereas other therapists in the practice um given their like where they're at in terms of their experience or you know they may be a little bit older then older couples would gravitate to those so um I would say like even when I think about my client load at the moment I've got couples as young as early 20s like you know 2021 up until 65 70. Yeah wow um, okay, so your roommates, I want to go back to that. Um, well, what do you say to someone who's just coming to you and they're saying, we feel disconnected, you know, we're not, we're not intimate anymore. I feel like roommates, like, where do you go from there? So the first part is always kind of exploring what has happened, you know, what's actually created that wedge um, and trying to understand, you know, is, is it based on because people have just become too busy with work or because they're distracted with what's going on in their own worlds that they've just slowly, slowly started to move apart. Um, Another thing that can happen, and again, this is something that I hear quite a bit, is that there comes a point where let's just say one partner is experiencing a lot of distress in their life or there's a lot of worry or, or, you know, a lot of concern and they don't necessarily feel like their partner's present enough for them. So in a way, it's more like, you know, I've tried to share myself, I've tried to be vulnerable with you, but you haven't helped me, you haven't been present for me. And therefore, as a consequence of that, or even as a defence, what they do is they just start to shut down and retract and kind of pull away themselves. And, you know, in a way, that's, that's a void occurs because one's not present, the other one's just slowly kind of pulling away and then you create this huge gap. Emma, is it typically more male um, that's not connected and females pulling away or do you see it across the board? Is there a theme there? Um, it would probably be a balance, a bit of this or a bit of that. And sometimes um, women who are t- a lot more career focused and, you know, they're in the the prime of, you know, really excelling um, and, you know, they've got a lot of commitments or the other instance is, you know, first or first time mums where their focus becomes baby or the child. So, they don't necessarily have the capacity emotionally, physically to be present for their partner because, you know, all the energy is to the little one. And so the, the, the male feels as though they've been abandoned or the other partner feels like they've been abandoned in a way. When it comes to, uh, let's just say, intimacy. So, you know, a lot of women after first baby, they need time to recover. They're exhausted. So their, their capacity to even want to give anything physically and not necessarily just sex. Um, but just be affectionate with their partner that in a way that is it, it becomes limited because of you know the how much they 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 have to give to their child and one common thing is that or you know common statements that I hear from the the partner is I just want I just want my wife back or I just want my partner back because they're not they don't feel like the, the priority but you kind of get it right because you've literally got an infant, you know, you may have had a really traumatic birth event where, you know, there's, there's trauma there. So like, what, what do you advise clients to do then? In those sort of instances, it's almost like, um, obviously providing some psychoeducation to the partner and saying, look, just letting you know, like these are, there's a reason why there's such limitation or, um, you don't feel like your partner's giving you as much because at this point in time, it is very difficult for them. You know, they, they feel like they're probably stretched in every direction. Um, so it's almost like, you know, giving them the, the education piece, but also then potentially resetting expectation for that period. And let's just say we, we map it out for a period, like a, a few months of what do you actually want the next few months to look like? You know, how do you feel like you can be a more supportive partner or a more connected partner 
what are the things that you could potentially map out together to make this feasible for both of you so that it doesn't feel like you're stuck in this battle of pushing and pulling um, and adding more strain unnecessarily to the relationship. But it sounds like you're sort of creating a time frame and you're saying it's going to be tough for this period of time and it's a marathon and you're going to run it, you're going to run it together and by the end of it, hopefully things will return to some kind of um, normalness. Is that basically what you're saying? Well, it's almost like you have to set up like a confine of time where it's like you're just in this sort of period, be conscious that things are going to be different. Once you ride that out, it's then like any sort of goal setting. It's like, what do you then do once that period is complete? And once you feel like you've done what you needed to in that period, what's, what does the reset button look like? Or what does the new set of goals look like? Um, and making sure that expectation is always checked and, um, and you, you want to make sure that it's realistic because as you said, you know, people might assume that just once the baby starts to potentially become a bit more independent when they're not feeding as often, for example, they may, the partner may then assume, oh, well, maybe things should be back to normal now. Um, and I, I guess in a way they're potentially setting themselves up, up for disappointment because it doesn't happen. Like it's never a linear process when it comes to a, a baby. You touched on infidelity before. Do you see an increase of infidelity during that period where, you know, the partner's sexual you know, needs are not necessarily being fulfilled? Um, do you think they're more at risk of going out and trying to find that need somewhere else? if you look at statistics or the like the research it does say that people do tend to kind of reach out when they feel like their needs aren't being met um but if i kind of reflect on my own practice one thing that i've found is that if an affair is going to happen it tends to happen while the the woman's pregnant so it happens before baby yeah before baby arrives and again this is kind of my people that i've seen in my practice over the years but it's been a very common thing where a couple will come in and, and the woman's quite heavily pregnant um, and this, this affair has, you know, kind of kicked off before babies even arrived. I find that quite surprising. Do you have a theory on why that is? It could potentially be one, again, if, a, if you think about the, kind of the journey of a pregnant woman, um, when you think about kind of emotional, the ups and the downs, the level of fatigue, you know, potentially there's preoccupation there because they're thinking about what it means when this little baby's about to enter the world. So they may not necessarily be as connected to their partner. Um, but the other could also be, so other than the, the physical side of things where the partner's physical needs aren't being met, um, the anxiety of what it may mean when a, when a baby's about to arrive and life's about to change there's a sense of or a need to want to just escape the reality of what that may mean. Right. So there's a significant psychological component there in the partner's mind where their cheating might be an escape back to some kind of normal world, the world that they're not heading into right now. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so I want to I want to sort of go back to the idea of, of cheating because um, you talked about younger couples dealing with that as well what are some of the themes you see there like what what happens and when does it happen and like what's the fallout so with younger couples the thing that I tend to again trends that I tend to see is more so they don't necessarily have long-standing affairs um you know the the couples that have come in who are younger it's generally the like a one-night stand where someone's gone out had a big night opportunistic type of fun and they've ended up you know sleeping with someone or you know hooking up with somebody 
um, fallout from there, obviously, it's pretty huge. I mean, that's a massive rupture in the relationship when someone kind of there's a, a discretion in that sense. The reason why, I guess, I get consequence of that really does depend on the on the relationship and the people that are involved because sometimes people will come in and it's completely destroyed their worlds and it will take them months and months, potentially, you know, over a year to deal with whatever's happened. Whereas I've seen instances where couples will just say, all right, let's, let's hash it out. Let's kind of talk about what's happened. I forgive you. And then within three or four sessions, they're gone and very quickly just move through it. Right. Um, so I, I had this fascinating conversation about cheating with someone once and they were saying, um, you know, we, we kind of hashed out the, the idea of three different types of cheating. One is where it's a one night stand, you're opportunistic, uh, and it's mainly just driven out of lust. Um, or you know, out of boredom, and it's like a one-night thing. You forget their name the next day. It was just the opportunity. Um, the second was where you actually deeply fall in love with another person, and you realize your current partner is maybe not your right soulmate. And it's not about the sex in that um, second scenario as much as what it is about a deep, intimate, emotional relationship. So it's you know, it's a long-term thing, and it may not even be sexual, but there's a deep emotional connection. Mm. Um, so I guess just for those two, do you? see um you talked about younger people being more of the one night stand does that mean that as people get older they tend to sort of start searching for other soulmates and that it's another type or is that just not what you see i think it's also the environment so a couple of people that are generally a little bit older let's just say they might be more settled in their workplace they're not necessarily just they might not be studying or working casually or part-time um they're working in a place where you if you, you think about opportunity within a workplace you know you're you're with these people eight hours a day you know five days a week sometimes more you spend more time with them than you would with your your partner so there's particular bonds that can be created because of that proximity and it's not even I mean sometimes those relationships aren't necessarily even born out of someone wanting to exit their current relationship it's more because because of time and because of experiences that these individuals share together in the workplace where they might be working on a project together or, you know, they may have successes together, create uh, connections are created and then they start to realise, oh, hang on a minute, what I'm getting out of this particular relationship is feels so much more different to my relationship at home. Um, and the novel experience and I guess the excitement of that when you first meet someone and you build that kind of bond, your brain op- like fires in a way where it's like, okay, I'm excited, this is different. Um, and p- from there, you know, an affair can stem because the the baseline of or the foundation of connections created through that experience. But it's also that novelty of this is someone new, this is exciting, um, and that's where people, you know, that that lust can also kind of take over. So, okay, you've got a couple sitting in front of you, and and one of them has had that sort of bond form at work. Um, they're in a long term relationship. Like, how do you? Is that, is that a very different conversation, a very different path to go through than the young couple who had, you know, a big night and a, and a one-night stand? Definitely. Um, and it's different because let's just say, for example, that person isn't going to be leaving their workplace. So they may be still in contact or um, have something to do with the person that they've, they've formed this. And let's just say it may not have even been a physical affair, but it's an emotional affair. Um, dealing with that and actually trying to navigate how they should behave or even just trying to soothe the partner who's not in that workplace and, you know, dealing with trust and all those sort of things that are so hard to control when 
unless the person was to exit the workplace, which sometimes people do because it just seems easier, it makes the process a lot more complicated. Surely that can't work. Surely you couldn't have had like an like an affair with someone and still go back to the office and and stay with your current partner. Like, does that actually, can you do that? You can. I mean, people have, but it, like I said, it's really complicated. And the, the process of healing does tend to be a lot more drawn out because if we think about triggering factors, like that triggering factor hasn't been removed. It's still present. And when you're trying to deal with the rawness of something that, you know, that um, the infidelity and that, that severance of the relationship, knowing that the cause of it is still very much present, to get your head around that, it's, it's bloody hard. Yeah. And I guess sometimes people may be in a second relationship to an affair that, that actually is potentially healthier for them than the, the primary or the first relationship. So as, you know, professional psychologist how do you how do you figure out when a client the right thing for a client is to stay with their current partner and hash it out in in maybe a non-ideal or toxic relationship and when it's time for them to move on like how do you help them work through that Mm. I'm pretty upfront with people when they come in and I always say to them obviously the the goal the goal isn't necessarily always to stay together, especially if, as you said, the relationship's totally unhealthy, really toxic, and sometimes um, it's as simple as it just being impossible because of a, a range or a variety of reasons. Um, and one of the kind of the prefaces I put out there before we start is let's try and work out where you're where you're at and whether coming together is actually going to be the best or whether you know separating in a way that's that's healthy where you better understand yourselves is going to be more of an ideal outcome realistically there's no from my perspective i don't think it's um i don't think it's from even from an ethical standpoint keeping someone together because they've got history or they've been together for 20 years or because they've got children when you know that the dynamic is actually really, really unhealthy for both of them and the kids, um, you basically kind of have to say, let's put all that stuff aside. It's just not, sometimes it's just not worth it for those reasons. It's a brutal, right? Particularly if there's kids involved. Exactly. Exactly. So what do you look for when you're listening to clients and you're looking at their dynamic and you're hearing these sorts of stories? I, I bet I bet the walls have a lot of stories to tell in your practice. You know, there's a lot mm. of emotion on the table and who knows what's going on. Like, what do you look for to go, maybe this is just not going to work? Are there signals? Are there cues? We're speaking specifically about infidelity. Um it, for some reason, it, it comes out, it's pretty apparent, like really early on, that if there's not this level of genuine remorse or genuine atonement, and the person is just, or the, what the partner's kind of just showing up, would to show, they're just there to show face. Um, but their efforts around acknowledging, um, really taking responsibility, really kind of um, working towards that path, towards like mutually working towards forgiveness. When you see that there's barriers created or let's just say even the, the affair continues, then it's pretty clear that this is like it's a relationship that's that's doomed, that's not going to work. Really? Do you ever see successful open relationships? When couples come in for issues related to polyamory or even just, you know, wanting to be in an open relationship, 
obviously they come in because there's issues within the structure and generally working with them to identify what are your rules, what are you okay with, what are you willing to accept. Once that's quite clearly defined and it's almost like they, they create a system that's respectful but also mutually agreed upon, um, then, yeah, it can really succeed. The, the failures are more, more so around when people aren't open with each other, they're not kind of transparent and they're not necessarily aware of where the other person sits with, with whatever the, the plan is or um, what would be the right word. Um, like the factors, what, whatever the factors may be of that poly relationship or open relationship. I've heard a lot of people, particularly men, talk about open relationships in really positive ways. And I haven't heard as many women talk about open relationships. So do you see that as being more a male pool or was that just my unique observation? Um, Most of my friends probably are male, so I probably get a skewed view on that. If I kind of think back on who I have seen, it's always either been a blend of um, same-sex, same-sex couples or, you know, the, the, the hetero couples that are open or that are poly, a lot of the time the structure of that relationship is that they will either swing together or they'll share experiences together. So, you know, they're quite comfortable in doing that because I guess the, the open experience is something that they do together. It's not someone just going off and, and doing their own thing and then coming back. Um, and I guess that's where I see, where I have personally seen that it can be successful because you don't have to second guess what's happening because it's almost like you're there so you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, we talked a little bit about um, resolution um, and we talked a little bit about like the the fundamental blocks of of relationships. So I want to kind of step side in, in, into that. Like what are the parts of a relationship, the, the good bits of a relationship, the principles, the, the things that are working um, in your view that are really important? Like what are the bits you have to get right that you can't compromise on? Mm. Um, well, I guess the, a nice segue from what we've been talking about is trust is essential. So you need to feel like you can, you know, wholeheartedly trust your, your partner and not necessarily just in regards to infidelity, but even, you know, from the space of being able to share with them, to be vulnerable with them, to feel emotionally and physically safe with them. So that's kind of a keystone foundation. Um, being able to communicate well and a lot of couples come in and they say, can we, you know, we want to learn to be able to communicate better. And obviously you've got to break that down and understand what that means. Um, but we also need to know how to necess- like hold um, conflicts or more kind of heated conversations in a way that is healthy and respectful where you, you're able to share your opinion, where it's not about causing hurt, but you're able to kind of say what you need to say in a way um, that's not always just in a, in a neutral tone because it's almost impossible never to have an argument. So sometimes you hear couples come in and say, oh, you know, we never fight, and that's a huge red flag for any, any couple therapist or psychologist. If someone say, we never fight, I would think, okay, well, does that mean that you're not voicing your discontent or your dissatisfaction? Like you're kind of, are you internalising that, which can be problematic? Yeah, I guess people often think of fighting as a negative thing in the same way as what they think of emotions as neg- like negative emotions as bad. And we heard a lot yeah. from um, previous psychologists talking about the fact that you know negative emotions aren't bad in themselves. 
you know, it's a part of the human experience. So I'm, I'm guessing you're saying basically, you know, fighting is part of the human experience of being in a relationship with someone. Exactly. Exactly. Like even being able to express anger. And as you say, you know, people get scared of being angry. They think that it's wrong or they shouldn't be doing it. Um, anger is there for a reason. It's just how we express it and learning how to um, regulate the anger in a way where it's not destructive um, can actually be, I think it's it's important for anybody's well-being to be able to kind of, you know, say what you need to say in a way to externalise your experience so that you're not holding on to it for it to become something else later down the track. It's pretty ironic to think that a couple would go see a therapist like yourself to learn to fight better. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, that that's really what you're talking about, right? It's about how to fight in a respectful way and thrash out difficult issues that have to be thrashed out because you're a separate person to the other person you're in a relationship with. And unless you can really work through those issues, you're not going to always like the outcome or the direction that you're in. Exactly. And that's, I think that's a key thing as well that you've pointed out is that um, we're all, we're individuals and, you know, there needs to be in any healthy relationship, there always needs to be um, differentiation, which means you as a person, you're a whole person. So you have your own values, you have your own experiences, like you kind of have your own world. So to be in a healthy relationship, it's almost like, there's that part. So you've got your individual parts, but then you've got your world that you co-create. And that in itself is almost like that third part of what it means to be in a healthy relationship. Do you think sometimes that balance goes wrong? Because I look at couples, particularly older couples, and I wonder, you know, where where are you as an individual? You know, particularly the old baby boomers. It's like they've evolved into this morphous couple and that they've lost their own like sense of self and identity. And you can't help but wonder, you know, are you going to be the the sort of person that buys a red sports car because you wake up and realize that you've lost who you are as an individual and it's just morphed into this this globule of a, a thing that you are together do you see that definitely and that's one thing that when people come to me individually where they may say i don't know who i am anymore i don't know what's important to me i don't know what i value and it's almost like there's this loss of um identity And if we think about our sense of self is such an important concept and there's certain pillars of who we are as individuals. And if you don't know who you are, that directly feeds into your psychological well-being. So, you know, people experience this um, lack of satisfaction or they're like, you know, I, I just feel like there's no, there's no strength to who I am and it doesn't give me, there's no value. Like I don't feel value in myself because um, I don't know what I'm doing. It's almost like you're just kind of living in a way without necessarily having a full purpose of who you are. So, I mean, what's your advice then to that person? Go form yourself, like get your own hobbies, hang out with your own friends, firm yourself up because you're going to be better as a couple if you do that. Is that basically the advice? Yeah. It's um really like thinking about how do you nourish yourself as an individual person? So, you know, go back to go back to the roots of thinking about what's important to you. What do you find satisfying? What do you value? Making sure that you're really kind of um, feeding those elements because the stronger you feel about who you, you are, the more satisfying you feel or satisfied you feel. Obviously, you bring that kind of pos- those positive elements to the relationship. It's a pretty counterintuitive place to go, though, to say in order for us to be better together, I've got to be better apart. So I'm going to go do my thing on the weekend that I really enjoy hanging out with my friends, you know, in a, in a healthy, safe, constructive way. But because that's ultimately going to bring me back stronger, happier, 
and you know a more successful individual and I'll have more of myself to give. That's not necessarily a logical place, right? Like I'm going to go do my own thing this weekend and that's going to be good for us. Mm, it's almost like you've got to think about finding the balance between, and this is a, a really kind of common exercise I give to couples is you've got to think about the, the, I get them to draw up three columns and there's two me columns. And then in the middle of the page, it's a we column. So it's like, you know, what is the, what are the me columns involve? And that's about, you know, finding the balance of looking after yourself, you know, the self-care, um, making sure that you've got your own pursuits and levels of kind of individuality but then it's that co-creation stuff, the we, you know, what does the we look like? What do we need to do to work on that? How do we carve out time to ensure we're feeding into us as a couple as well? So it's, it's making sure that all these experiences and all these conversations, it is not necessarily like you go and do your own thing and that's it. It's like, you know, you talk about it. You talk about why it's important. You talk about why you value it and why it's necessary um, so that you're, there's a sense of connection in that process as well. That's a great visual, the two columns. And I'm guessing the two columns overlap in the middle and that's the wee bit. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you talked about the fundamentals and about um, trust being one of the most important ones. What do you do when you think your partner's lying to you? Like how do you navigate mm. that? Good question. Um, I guess it depends on what it would be about. You know, what would be the context of the lie? Or the, the the assumed lie. But does it does it matter? Because any kind of lying is going to start eroding that trust, whether they're lying about who they're hanging out with on the weekend, even if it's not a sexual or, you know, a, a cheating scenario. If they're hanging out with a mm. mate that you, they know you don't like or they're playing a game or sport behind your back that you think is a bit of a waste of time or um, you're spending money on objects that you know your partner wouldn't approve of, so you, you kind of start deceiving them in that regard or... There's texts on your phone that, you know, is not straight necessarily cheating, but you'd be a little bit red-faced if they start reading them. Like anything in that Mm. sense, like you're starting to erode trust if you think your partner's pushing the boundary in any one of those areas. So like how do you approach that? Mm. Um, You're right. I mean, I think deceit in any format is not ideal for a healthy relationship. Um, Sometimes, I mean... To be able to address it or even deal with it, I think, um, and I'm kind of thinking about a particular couple that I'm working with at the moment, getting to the bottom and exploring with them. So, for example, the one of the the individuals in the, the relationship um, always had this suspicion or sense that their partner was never being fully truthful about finances. Um, but it was just like a, it was just more of an intuitive feeling Um, And then eventually they did a bit of their own checking and they were able to verify, hey, this situation, like what I was thinking was actually true. And the process of actually managing that was more so about trying to identify why that partner felt the need to, to withhold the entire truth. So after calling them out, and obviously, you know, initially there's always going to be a bit of a defense about, oh, no, what you're saying isn't true or, you know, they themselves, because of the shame or the guilt that's involved with the, the lie, we have to work with that, but we also need to understand and um, through the therapeutic process, what's pushed that person to that point? You know, what's made them feel like they cannot be full, wholeheartedly truthful or why have they held back on not necessarily sharing everything that they need to share? And I guess trying to understand what, what the why um, can make it a lot easier for the couple to then address and potentially prevent it from happening again. 
was this a scenario of someone trying to self-medicate or deal with another area or was there something different? Well, there, there was like excessive spending. So it was almost like a soothing mechanism for them because they weren't feeling happy or satisfied with their, their job. Um, they were spending excessively just to, it was almost like, you know, filling the void where there was this instant gratification, um, but spending beyond their means, which was problematic for the, for the relationship. It's an easy trap to fall into, right? Like it's such a powerful, mm. you know, emotional hit when you, when you buy something. And online shopping, and I guess, you know, if you think about what's available to us these days, it's literally, it's a click away. Deadly. That's deadly. The amount of books I bought recently that I know I won't read. (laughs) Very relatable challenge to have. Um, So in this particular scenario, um, how do you get past the denial, which is this human response you're talking about? I mean, if we were thinking about it from a theory point of view, denial kind of if we look at stages of change the very first stage where people are just kind of pre-contemplating the need to want to change so they know you know either subconsciously or somewhere in the back of their mind that what they're doing isn't necessarily destructive uh, sorry constructive or healthy because they wouldn't be hiding it if it wasn't a problem um so yeah like it's about the education piece around you know how is this serving you what would it mean if you were to change? You know, what, what would the consequences be if you were to keep doing what you're doing versus if you were to stop? And really getting them to think about uh, what would be the importance. Like they need to define the importance of change for themselves for them to eventually be, you know, one to acknowledge but then be motivated enough to, to, to tackle it. And in how many sessions do you get to that point? Is that straight away in this particular scenario? This particular scenario, he was the the person who was actually the the spender. He knew that things weren't good. So he was very much able to acknowledge the impact of what he was doing, like so the destruction, um, but it was more about the behaviour modification. So if you think about kind of um, patterning and what happens in the brain, like, you know, when there's certain networks that are already pre-existing and have been existing for a long time, we do things because it's habitual and the brain just kind of kicks off and does it because that's what it knows. So to stop that, like you can say to your brain, I know I shouldn't be eating that, you know, block of chocolate. I know it's not good for me, but you know what? I've had a crappy day. I'm just going to, I will do it because I know I get an instant soothing sensation from it. Yeah. Okay. So if someone's listening and they think there are things in my relationship that I'm not happy with, that I believe um, I could potentially really improve by going to talk to a pro like yourself. What sort of things could they say to their partner to encourage them to join them so that they don't end up being a one-man band sitting in therapy with you but have their partner there thrashing it out together? That's a great question. Um, I think sometimes just like really simple questions like asking your partner, um, you know, how do you feel about us? How do you feel about, you know, how we are at the moment and highlighting different domains of the relationship let's say for example um let's just current living circumstances or you know future planning or um financially where you feel you are physically intimately how you feel you are so potentially highlighting a couple of those things that you're not necessarily that satisfied or happy in and then asking your partner getting their opinion on it and trying you know in a way it's almost like bringing them to the process by really getting an insight into how is it just me that I'm feeling this way or am I are they also not satisfied but not talking about it so if you're going to open up the dialogue by asking 
just really simple questions, it'll also give you a sense of where your partner's at within that. Because if they themselves are like, no, everything's fine, I'm fine, like there's no, no dramas, that's going to give you a, an indication of, one, whether they have reflected on it and, two, whether if you were to commence the therapeutic process, whether it would actually be an effective one because you're on two separate pages. Because you have to acknowledge there's an issue in order to be able to work towards a solution. So if you're like, no, nope, I'm absolutely fine on that front, on that particular domain, you're probably not going to make much progress, right? Exactly. And I tend to find that couples that come in where it's one person almost like dragging the other one in, they don't last very long because, you know, the process is getting the other person. I mean, both people have to be reflective. You need to be self-assessing and you need to actually think about where do I genuinely sit in whatever the problem may be. And if you, one, don't want to look at it or two, don't want to confront it, then therapy is almost, I mean, it's, um, it is pointless. Yeah. Interesting. Um, okay, so let's say you've got your partner over the road. You agree that there's an area of your relationship you can both improve. Now you've made a booking to go see yourself, Emma. What's going to happen when um, a couple walks through the door? How does it work? What do you talk about? Like how does it all play out? Mm-hmm. In the in, With the very first session, it's literally just about um, information gathering. So what I will do is I kind of try and split the session quite evenly and give each person equal time and space to give their perspective on things. Um, And it's literally, you know, again, depending on what the initial presenting problem may be, it's more like let's hear your version of it. I really want to hear your story um, so that one, everybody knows and understands how that person is and what they're thinking. And obviously there's always going to be two different versions and then from that, it's then just drawing out further information by asking set questions around, um, you know, why is it problematic for you? You know, what you know what has actually brought you here? What is it that you're wanting to fix? So that by the end of that first session, you've been able to narrate your, your scenario, but we've also been able to collaborate and think about what are we working on so that everybody is on the same page. Typically, how many sessions do couples... Um, use to work through issues I guess what's the range I know it's going to depend so much on each couple on each but if someone's listening and they're like yeah look I I want to go see someone I guess they need to think about time they need to think about level commitment they need to think about money Um, what sort of expectations Mm. should they have I think uh, let's just say if it's not an extreme scenario it could range anywhere between you know 10 let's just say 10 to 12 sessions to try and nut out, one, to understand what the problems are, to deal with the concerns, but then to also put strategies in place because part of the process, like my particular process is I will always give homework tasks and strategies for people to try and apply outside of session so that it's almost like um, you're gaining independence from the therapeutic process to be able to function as a connected couple without a therapist involved. So they need almost time. Let's just say, for example, there's certain exercises that I give them. Um, what I'll do is I'll, I'll give them specific instructions and say, give this a go outside of, let me know how it goes. How do you feel about it? Where do you get stuck in the process? So that may take a couple of sessions of back and forth to kind of tweak what's actually going to work for that couple. What are some of the most common exercises you give couples? So if there's, let's just say there's intimacy issues, um, the very first thing that we we do is that we would talk about, you know, um, where are the concerns when it comes to intimacy? Where are the disconnects? 
and then it might be something like the the exercises might entail um, just starting to touch each other again mindfully and to connect not se- like penetratively or sexually in that way but more so what does it feel like just to lie next to each other and to mindfully you know hold hands or you know there's certain kind of physical exercises that will be given so they can actually try it and then tap into how they feel about it where are they uncomfortable where are they you know are they is this pleasurable so that we can then talk through that process when we when we come together again do you ever have surprises do you ever have couples come back after doing their homework and you're just like blown away by what happened or have you been there so uh, long that nothing surprises you anymore yeah. <laughs> sometimes you can be pleasantly surprised where because one thing that I've found is that when couples come in for intimacy issues, um, it is such an, for a lot of couples talking about it, they become so uncomfortable. So when you give them an exercise like, hey, what I want you guys to do is get playful with each other. I don't want you to have sex. I just want you to get playful. You know, either um, jump in the shower or give each other a massage or whatever it may be. But just even suggestions like that, there's almost like a, a resistance or a reluctance because of um, embarrassment and that's something that yeah that's something that's surprising because it's like well you guys have been together for so long but it's such a, it's still such a taboo topic even for younger couples not necessarily couples in their you know 40s and 50s yeah why do you think that is I think a lot of the the things that I see coming out of that is that people are uncomfortable in their own skin so they're not necessarily comfortable with their bodies or, you know, they may, put, I mean, you get comfortable in your relationship, you put on weight, they don't, you don't feel sexy. So there's just certain things that are going on internally for that person um, where they themselves don't feel attractive. So, you know, letting yourself be vulnerable and so exposed in that, in that manner can be hard because you've got to let go of some of that negative narrative. Mm. I bet there might be some people listening thinking, hmm, we're going to get some interesting homework if we go see Emma. (laughs) (laughs) Babe, that's a psychologist. She said this is homework. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Hey, um, is there anything we missed? Is there anything you've seen or experienced in terms of relationships we need to talk about? One thing that I like to steer couples away from is the idea of seeking happiness within the the relationship because that the concept of happiness is um it's a little bit of a dangerous one because happiness like any emotion is so fleeting Um, and we need to think about it from in a way like if you're you're considering what it means to be in a happy relationship it's for me the way that I see it's too surface level we kind of need to dig a little bit deeper and think about what does it mean to be well connected what does it mean to be satisfied you know, what does it mean to actually feel like our needs are being met and we're meeting the needs of other of our partner? But would it, wouldn't you, wouldn't you, if you're happy, wouldn't you be satisfied? I'm playing devil's advocate on this. The the thing is with happiness is like, yeah, this is making me happy. But again, when I say that emotion is so fleeting, like it's something that comes and goes. It's very different to someone who can actually say, you know what, I'm genuinely satisfied. I feel like this is such a well-connected relationship. It's it's beyond happiness. You know, that's kind of the ultimate that we 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 trying to reach or, or to look for. Um, because let's just say, I'll give you an example. Um, going out to you know your favorite venue, or going out and having your your you know a favorite meal, or going out for cocktails. It's like, wait, well, this is great. Like this is really it makes me happy being out with you and enjoying this. But once you leave and you go back into your relationship, you go back home. 
you, you disconnect, you're back on your phones again. That sense of happiness of that environment, you know, that's now gone because back at home, you're back into normality and you're not necessarily totally engaged with each other. Yeah, that's really interesting. Does that make sense? It does. It does. You talked about online dating. I feel like we can't finish this conversation without talking about online dating because when you talk about happiness, it's the sort of thing that I imagine you can project in an online space a lot easier. So, mm. you know, you're, you're dating or you're in the early stage of a relationship, particularly when you start communicating only through a screen, it's a lot easier to show that very one-dimensional aspect of your personality and enjoy that very one-dimensional part of your relationship. Um, but, you know, when you close your laptop or switch your phone off, then all this other stuff starts coming out, which, you know, if, you know, like you say, if you can connect all those other emotions, if you can find someone who will sit with you when you're sad and just be with you, surely that's a better experience than someone who's only going to be there pinging off you when you're happy. So um, can you talk a little bit about how, you know, you think the dating world works at the moment? I know this is a bit of a segue, but I think it's an important one to touch on before we go. Mm. Um what do you see in terms of the dating world right now and, and technology and how does that change things? And I bet there's a huge amount of challenges out there that weren't there, you know, 10 or even five years ago. Um, what are you seeing? What are you hearing? So one thing that is, that's come up quite commonly is the, and I'm going to say this is mainly around the, the females that I'm treating, is that they're, they're online trying to find a partner they're not necessarily just wanting that kind of quick fling. They're wanting someone to be able to try and build a life with. They have really, really great difficulty doing that because um, expectations of the da- of the dating world at the moment, especially because a lot of it is online, and let's put COVID aside where, you know, we haven't been able to go out, but more so even being out in a bar before COVID hit, you'd hear of people that would be out in a, in a venue and they'd be on the app. So they'd be on Bumble or they'd be on the app where, it, you know, those apps that kind of show you where someone may be. So you're kind of out physically, yet you're still reliant on technology to try and connect you with someone else. And because it's so easy to be able to reject someone online, because it's it's just a face, you don't necessarily know that person. You're not necessarily having a full-blown conversation, being ghosted you know, being, um, you know, having a first date, having a great date, but then ne- never being, you know, followed up on, it's become so easy to do that, that women are finding that they or the women that I'm treating are finding that they're putting themselves out there. They're meeting people on face value that seem really great. Um, yet the follow through is, it's pretty horrendous for them. So it's, it's tough because it's almost like they don't know what to do, where to go, how to potentially meet people because they don't do it, let's just say, the old-fashioned way anymore. Mm. Do you find that there's more anxiety with people who typically initiate, you know, conversation relationships in a face-to-face scenario because you don't have as much practice anymore and because it's a big deal being rejected to your face and it's a lot easier? You know, are you seeing that? Definitely. Yeah, I guess it's almost like we you are out of practice. Even... Um, just thinking about standard communication with friends, like most people nowadays will will happily text. Not many people will pick up the phone and have a, a conversation. So it's almost like we've lost the art of being able to speak to one another in we've a kind of a face-to-face capacity. Face-to-face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Or even, even if you think, you think about the art of seduction. Like nowadays it's not 
there's none of that kind of flirtatious game playing. It's, you know, you hear about people, there's dick pics and all that sort of stuff that just get flung out there. And that's someone's invitation to say, let's, let's, let's do it without the, all the um, in-between stuff that used to be exciting. Yeah. Maybe that'll be your next uh, masterclass, flirting one-on-one face-to-face. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's such a great idea, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I, I was looking at my, um, my brother-in-law's, um, my brother-in-law's on a whole bunch of dating apps and I was looking at his text dialogues and the, uh, he's a very witty, smart guy on text and it's like another world to me. Like Even just to get a response, mm. you need to really be writing very clever, very funny, very engaging texts. You've got to be really fast. Um, and then there's like, that's it. Like that's, that's the, that's how you put your, your best foot forward is by text. And if you're not a good texter, if you're not a fast texter, if you're not witty, if you can't say funny things, if you can't use the right emojis that connect with that person on the other side, you're out, you're gone, you're shut down, you're blocked, you're ghosted. And it's totally, you know, from my perspective as now a fairly old soul, I've been married nearly 10 years now. It's such a weird space because um, when I was on the dating scene, it was face-to-face and dating had very, very small texting component. And it's like, that's been flipped now. And the people who are most successful at dating or connecting with partners are those who are great texters first and foremost. Like that is the most important skill in dating. It would seem to me an old soul looking in from the outside now. It's like, it's so reliant on your ability to text. And then it's like calling is, is sort of a lot less important. And then fa- what you do face to face by that point, you know, you've had so many texts go back and forward that the understanding has been set for what this dynamic when we do meet up is going to look like. And so the face to face is almost irrelevant. And it's like this weird upside down space. Cause when you're with someone in a relationship, you're not going to text to them. You're going to, you're going to speak to them and you're going to have a face to face relationship with them. It's like the criteria going in is based on your ability to text and not your ability to speak and engage. And like we talked about, deal with complex issues face-to-face and deal with conflict or disagreeable topics and sit with negative emotions and all these things you talked about. But it's like, yeah, the dating world flipped that and it's it's like a train crash. It, it is. And that's it kind of even plays out in relationships because people have become so accustomed to communicating in that way that when it does come to difficult issues – the first thing that they will do is they will start to text a partner. Yeah, even if they're sitting in the, the other room, it's more like let's, I can't talk to you, let's, and this is something that I have to, I put a blanket ban on when couples see me is that if you need to talk about stuff, you do it face-to-face, cut the text out. But you'd be surprised how many people use that method um, to, you know, deal with whatever the, the concern may be. Okay, so why cut the texts? Well, I mean, the first thing is text lose tone. Like it's so hard It's and it's very easy to um, misinterpret what someone's saying. And I was it's interesting. I was reading um, this piece the other day that said even people using full stops and punctuation within a text can be misconstrued because a full stop seems serious. So if someone said in a text, um, yeah, I'm okay, dot, versus yeah, I'm okay, no dot, the tone of that is interpreted in com- completely different ways. Right. So, okay, tone's misconstrued. Any other concern with texting? Well, I mean, if you also think about you, if you've got something pretty important to say and especially if, you, you know, someone's hurt you or it's just something that you want to resolve, the idea of putting out these essays of back and forth and, um, you know, the just even the dynamic of a conversation on a screen is just so hard to for it to flow appropriately. 
Um, because let's just say you've got someone who is a fast texter versus someone who's not. This fast texter would have potentially slabs and slabs of information while this other person is still trying to get one point across. Mm. But what if it's someone's only way to reach out and have a difficult conversation? Again, I'm just playing devil's advocate here, but if you've got something heavy in your chest and the only way you can start a dialogue is with a text message, that's the most, you know, the person might be really confrontational and you may not be, or it might be, you know, just a dreadful thought sitting down with your partner, but you could probably raise it with a text. What what do you do then? I think raising it is okay. So even if you were to almost set it up to let that person know, hey, there's a couple of important things that I'd really love to talk about. There's just some things that I'd love to address. Um, Would you be okay with that? So it's almost like let's kind of set up the process and highlight it that way so you're not feel like ambushing that other person. Um, And you've also you give them the opportunity to process or think about what it is that they want to speak about so that hopefully when you do come together face-to-face, um, it's not as heightened. Mm. And I had one more question. I'm back with this image of a couple sitting in a room that we've, you know, they've just been texting and, hey, I want to talk to you about something that's on my mind. And it's one of those conversations that's uncomfortable. It's going to be a confrontation. Um, do you have any thoughts or advice on how someone in that position, I just want to close out that image because it's a powerful image, um, how someone in that position can raise something when they may not be a confrontational kind of person they may not like having these sorts of icky conversations how do they raise something that's heavy on their chest in a way that will lend their partner to be most open to listening to them and put them in the best place to actually get some resolution on it Mm, i think that's a really great question because you do find that there are a lot of people that do avoid conflict because it is uncomfortable or they don't want to confront because there's a negative connotation to what it means to, you know, what they're anticipating in terms of that confrontation. I think if I'm, let's just say, for example, um, I'm working with, I'll split this answer into two. The first is if I'm working just with the individual themselves, the first thing that I will always ask them is, um, what are the assumptions that you're experiencing based on having this conversation? So it's almost like, what are you anticipating? You know, what are your worst case scenario thoughts so that we can get them into a position where it's almost like you're priming them to think about what could go wrong versus what could go right um, to almost give them a little bit of confidence around, you know, what is it that you need to say and why do you want to say it without that fear of assuming that it's going to explode? But if my assumption is I'm going to raise it with my partner and it's going to explode, they're going to get angry, they're going to get defensive, um, now I'm imagining that and that makes me feel really scared now to broach it with my partner. Or they'll be dismissive. They'll be like, oh, don't mm. be ridiculous. You're crazy. You're imagining things. You know, you know you're know, you always seeing the worst in me. So um, how how is that? Like, how am I going to be in, in the right headspace to do that? So if, there's, if you've had past experiences where this has actually happened, um, then I think it's important to be able to um, preface that conversation and say, hey, like there's some really kind of uncomfortable things that I want to talk about and I know it's not going to be easy because it, when, when I've done that in the past, this is the reaction that I've had and I didn't think it was helpful. So it's almost like you call them out on that behaviour before you even start so that you're making them conscious of that, that potential reactivity. That, that's if it has occurred. Um, but I also find that a lot of the times when people are assuming worst-case scenarios, it's their, it's their own anxieties where it hasn't necessarily happened. And so their own avoidance or reluctance makes them fearful 
And so they're anxious something's going to happen when it may not. And that's where you have to say, well, hang on a minute. Let's kind of talk about your experiences. When you have had uh, confrontational conversations in the past, what has actually happened? So it's almost like you get them to work through that process and understand, has it been explosive? If it has, how did you deal with it? So again, it's about kind of building confidence to say that, you can do this because if you have in the past and it's gone okay, that, that ex, let, let's draw on that experience. Yeah, that's a great way of sort of prefacing it actually. Someone gave me um, advice very early on in my relationship and they said whenever you have you know, something weighing on your chest or you need to have a difficult conversation, always reflect back on um, your perception of it because it's impossible for that person to challenge that. Say if, if the statement is, you attacked me last night at dinner. It's very different to I felt threatened and attacked when you made that comment because they can separate, oh, well, that wasn't my intent. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, yeah, highlighting the emotional impact versus the behavior where you're not playing the blame game is never helpful because, you know, it's very easy for someone to deny, as you said, well, that wasn't my intent. That's how you perceived it. But being able to focus and say, hey, you know, you probably didn't mean to do this, but I just need to let you know, like the way you said that, it just kind of made me feel really uncomfortable. Um, can we talk a little bit about that? So it's you're drawing the experience and kind of highlighting the, the impact that it's had on you versus saying, hey, you know, you're a real asshole. I didn't like that. Where immediately, you know, a person can will become defensive because, you know, you're highlighting poor behaviour, which they may not have realised or intended or, you know, um, they they may not have even had the insight into what they did or why they did it. There's just so much we can talk about, but I want to respect your time here. Um, Emma, thank you so much. If someone wanted to find you, where can they where can they connect up with you? So uh, website is probably the best way to go and it's couplestherapymelbourne.com.au. And on that, there's some really interesting blogs that we post up pretty regularly. There's even a quiz on there that will um, almost determine whether couples therapy is right for you right now. Um, and then through that, there's also the, obviously the contact links in case you need to reach out. One thing that we do offer as well is that we, let's just say you're a little bit uncertain around whether therapy is the right thing for you or whether the therapist is going to be the right fit. Um, we offer like a discovery call for us to just talk to you before you commit to the process. Um, and that's where we help you, we nut out, you know, what are you looking for? What's going to be important so that you at least feel like you're, you, you've connected with the right person. So is that discovery call a free part of sort of lining up the initial consultation? It is, yeah. So it's kind of, there's no cost to it. Um, and generally it will either be myself or my business partner who does it. And um, we'll just, yeah, again, talk to you about what is it that you're looking for. And if we, we find that it's what, whatever you need, we, we can't meet that need, it's not the right fit, we'll just refer you on to either a colleague or someone who might be a bit more appropriate. Such a wise person, Emma. <laughs> Thank you for, for sharing all your insights. This has been amazing. Um, no. I want to respect our time. It's been a pleasure. Okay, well, that's it for today. We hope that you've enjoyed this conversation with Emma Chalakians. You can find us at talklink.com.au. See you soon.